local reporter in Syracuse, New York, uh, featured that article and wrote this. He said, among all the sounds in the city of Syracuse, one in particular stands out. That would be the booming voice of Dominic Mario uh, echoing off the buildings as he preaches the Bible on various street corners for over 20 years. Most ignore him, several hear him, and few revive him. That doesn't deter the enthusiastic 71-year-old from reciting scripture like a second language while wearing an old-school sandwich sign that says, Jesus saves. Several years ago, after that interview, a different interview he gave, and he was asked the question, what is it that he wants everybody to know? What's the one thing that he wants everybody to know? And his simple reply to that question was that you need to be prepared to meet God. Be sure that you're ready because your sins will find you out. And on a more personal note, the, the reporter went on and said, well, what do you want them to know about you? Not just in general, but there's something specific. What do you want them to know about you specifically? And his answer was, I really care about people's eternal souls and their destiny. I come out here with no thought of myself and or any selfish reasoning of my own. My motive is the care for other people's soul. And you may have never encountered a street preacher in your life, but I'm guessing that most of you have at least seen one or heard one. If you've uh, been to the barbecue festival in Lexington, there are usually a couple there. Um, I've seen them on the streets of Salisbury. In fact, the other day I was uh, on the corner of Walmart. There was uh, a guy standing there. Um, just uh, almost in every major city and different cities around the country, there are these men that do this and some ladies that do it as well. And uh, while we may not always agree with their tactics, we may not always like the way they're kind of boisterous and stuff like that, uh, most of them really do have a heart and most of them really do care for the eternal souls of people. All right, And I can say that because I've met several of them. I, I have several. In fact, I grew up with some guys uh, that became, I didn't grow up with them. I knew them when I was younger. Maybe I should say it that way. That were street preachers. And the reason they would do it is because they really were concerned about people's souls. So instead of sitting back in a church, they did the only thing they could do. They were going to take the message out to the streets. And they were going to go out to the streets. And they were going to proclaim this message of salvation, the message of the gospel, to anybody and everybody, whether they listened or not. They were going to do their job to get the message out there, to get the message to the people. And uh, whether they received the message or whether they didn't, that didn't make a difference to them. They were going to do their job because they really did care about the souls of people, and especially those that needed to hear the gospel. And so while most of us may not be a huge fan of street preachers, it's probably... Uh, the best image I can think of in the way that Solomon describes wisdom here in this last section of chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs. We have started the book of Proverbs a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, we've been walking through chapter 1, and uh, I told you we're going to go through most of the book. Now, it's not going to take, like, we're not going to spend three weeks on every single chapter. I promise you that, okay, because we'd never get through it. Uh, but we're going to finish up chapter 1 today. We're going to start in verse 20. And read through verse 33, and we're going to see uh, this personality of wisdom as this lady calling out in the streets, and, and really this foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Uh, you can follow along in your copy of the Bible, or, or in the words will be on the screen beside me. Uh, but Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. How long, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and you fools hate knowledge? 
If you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all of my counsel and did not accept my correction, I, in turn, will laugh at your calamities. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamities comes like a whirlwind. When trouble and stress overcome you, then they will call out to me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me. Because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected all my correction. They will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. From the turning away of the inexper- for, excuse me, for the turning away of the inexperienced will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and be free from the fear of danger. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are so thankful. God, that you are a way maker. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of all that we are surrounded by in this world, and and even in our own personal lives, God, you are making a way for us. God, that you have made a way for us to come back to you. And so, God, we praise you for being the one who made a way when we had no other way. God, for being the one who has extended out to us grace and mercy when we had no other option. And so, God, we praise you for that. And, God, we thank you, God, for all that you have done for us. And, God, we joined our voices together and we wish to magnify you and praise you because, God, you are so worthy. God, because you offer us a chance to do exactly what your word says, to live securely, to live without the fears of evil of this world. And so, God, this morning, my honest prayer is for those that are living with the fears of evil. God, those who have not responded to to your calling out. And God, I'm praying for us who have. God, that you will ignite in us a passion to go out and to call out even more. God, that we will magnify you and we will worship you. And God, that we will send this message beyond the walls of this building into the streets that surround this church, into the streets that surround our houses and all of our neighborhoods. God, let us not be complacent. God, let us be on fire and sense your passion for us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, uh, in fact, it's been a long time ago now, I found myself um, in a very uncomfortable situation. And some of you uh, may be able to relate to this, hopefully not, but maybe so. I was sitting on the side of the road um, in my vehicle, and behind me was a state trooper uh, with his blue lights on. Um, and he uh, had, had pulled me over, and he walked up to the side of my vehicle, and he asked the typical, can I see your license, your registrations?" and he took that stuff, and he came back up to my window, and he said, do you know how fast you were going? And so I, thought, I, I gave him an honest answer. I gave him the answer of, this, well, I, this is, I, I'm pretty sure this is approximately where I thought I was at speed-wise. Right? I thought this is the speed that I was going. And when I told him that, he just kind of looked at me funny, like, are you sure you want to answer that way? And then he, he followed up with this other question. He said, maybe I should ask you this. Do you know what the speed limit is on this road? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure the speed limit is 65. 
And he stared at me and he said, no. The speed limit here is 55, not 65. And so at that point, I already knew I was in trouble because let's be honest, I had pretty much confessed right there that I was speeding and I was busted in this whole thing. And I would pretty much confessed that I was in trouble. And so I thought that my best and honest defense was I was really just going to plead ignorance. Okay, But it was an honest ignorance because I really didn't know that I was in a 55 zone. And so I told him, I said, well, sir, I, I am really sorry. And I tried to be real polite about it. And I said, I'm sorry about that. And I really did think that this road was 65. I really did think where I was at was 65. And, and so I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And so he was, he was not persuaded at all by my plea of ignorance. He was not persuaded by my politeness at all because he simply looked at me and he said, with his staring at me, um, and he said, there's two things you need to know. One, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, no matter who you are. Number two, a couple miles back, there were several signs that told you you need to reduce speed ahead and other signs that told you this is what the expected speed limit is from here on. So whether you saw the signs or you just chose to ignore the sign, it doesn't make a difference to me. And then he proceeded to hand me my very first speeding ticket and walk back to his car. All right. You see, the trooper made it very clear that for him, ignorance was no excuse because me as a driver was responsible for knowing the speed limit of where I was at. And two, he made it clear that if I had any question that the government had done its job, right? It had posted signs that he had saw signs. There were very clear indications. This is what's expected. This is the limit. You should not go over this limit, right? And so for him, there was no excuse. This was not an excusable, excusable situation at all, that it was totally up to me to follow the law. And so as we look at wisdom... In this final section of chapter 1, we see this same approach. That for wisdom, ignorance is not an excuse that's going to work. All right? And when we see wisdom in this section, uh, Solomon depicts wisdom as this woman who is, is uh, crying out in the streets. She's not trying to hide. She's not trying to be isolated. She is, is out in the middle of the streets. And the reason she is depicted as a woman, let me go ahead and explain this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch back and forth between God and, and this lady, wisdom. The reason she's depicted in wisdom is because in Hebrew and a lot of other languages, um, all nouns have a gender assigned to them. They're either masculine, they're either feminine, or they're neuter. Okay, that's the only three options there are. Right? English, we don't do this, but in other languages, they do. Wisdom is feminine. All right. So if you're gonna, it's always you don't get to choose it. That's just the way it is. All right. So when he depicts wisdom, he's going to depict it as a woman because it is a feminine noun. All right. So he depicts her as a as a woman who's out in the streets, and she's not hard to find. Man, she is easy to find because she is out in the public. She is in amongst the crowds of people, and you see this in verse 20 and verse 21 and verse 20 he writes that wisdom calls out in the street she raises her voices or her voice in the public square the public square was often kind of the center of the city and typically it was kind of an open air market all right think of a farmer's market if you will um or if you've been to lexington barbecue festival think of that like there's all these vendors that are there in the in the city center in the public square and they're all trying to sell different stuff right so this this is a place that gets pretty hectic at times there's a lot of commotion that happens in this place 
place. And not only were there people trying to sell stuff, um, there were also, this is where public trials were held. They didn't necessarily have courthouses like we have today, that if you committed a crime, they took you out in the public square and they held your trial right there. All right? It wasn't in some back room, it wasn't some courtroom, in some uh, courthouse somewhere. You had your trial right there. They, every, that way everybody heard all the evidence against you. Everybody heard everything that you did, but they also heard the punishment that you were going to receive, and they made a mental note of, hey, that person did this, and it caused them to do that, so I'm not going to do that. All right. So it was a way of deterring future crimes from happening. And so the public square was this uh, marketplace. It was also these where trials were held. And in this open-air market, if you've ever been to one, you know that these things get pretty noisy from time to time, especially... In ancient days, because uh, today, if if you go to an open air market, um, or if you go to the barbecue festival, or you go to Southern Charm of the Farm, you you don't hear quite as much noise as you did in the first century, because a lot of the advertising we do today comes beforehand, right? Like I can go ahead and tell you, at the um, Southern Charm of the Farm that happens at Tangwood, or happens a couple years ago at Tangwood before everything got shut down, um, you can go on to Facebook and you can see all the vendors that are going to be there, and all of them tell you on their Facebook page, this is what they're going to have for sale at this show, okay? So they don't have to advertise they're at the show because they've already done it. Well, in, the, in thousands of years ago, they didn't really have that option. They couldn't post what they had for sale on Facebook. So the way they advertised was they simply had somebody standing out front yelling what they had for sale. Right? So this person over here is yelling they got chickens, two for one. This person over here is yelling they got grain for half off. This person over here, they're selling corn or potatoes. And, and so you have all these people, and the only way they're attracting you to their little stand is they're yelling. So it gets very loud in one of these markets. It gets very chaotic in these markets. But in verse 21, Solomon makes it clear that wisdom's not going to be drowned out. Even in the midst of all of this chaos... Wisdom is not going to be drowned out. He says in verse 21 that she cries out above the commotion. If you've got a different translation, it may say at the head of the road, which means that she is the highest voice on all that's going on in the road. You cannot ignore her. You can pretend that you don't hear her, but you can't truly ignore her. You can't pretend that you don't know that she's there. She's going to make her presence known. In fact, as we finish verse 21, we find out that even if you move away from the chaos of the public square, you're still going to encounter her because she's other places as well. In verse 21, at the very end of it, it says that she speaks at the entrance of the city gates. The city gates were the very opposite of the public square the, the square. the city gates were where the elders and the leaders of the city, this is where they would gather and they would sit around the city gates and they would do really formal business agreements here. Right? They would have discussions here. So it's not the chaotic scene of the marketplace. This is where the leaders are sitting down and they, they are determining matters of business that are going on here. And so instead of trying to yell over each other, they're really going to sit and listen to each other. They're going to listen to what's going on and they're going to hear actually kind of d- disputes between other people. But it's a very calm and quiet scene. Do you notice that in the streets she's crying out, she's calling out, but here she just speaks. 
Because it's not the same chaotic scene going on here. Things are different here. So whether you're in the midst of chaos in the public square, her voice is loud and she can be heard, or if you're in the midst of this quiet discussion that's going on amongst the leaders, she is still speaking. If you're in the chaos and all the common people are in the public square, she's there. Or if you're in the elite group of leaders and elders, she's there and she's speaking. You see, there's no place that you can go that you're not going to encounter the voice of wisdom. There's no way of hiding from what her what she's saying. Her message is out there. It's clear. And there's no way that you can't hear it. Wisdom is open to everyone. It's out there. It's not hidden away. It's not tucked away in, in some big building where you have to go and search for it. Wisdom is there and it's public and it's open for everyone. And you can't plead ignorance to wisdom or her message because she has done her job of getting her message clearly out to everyone. You see, Paul picks up on the same idea in the book of Romans. With this idea that God doesn't exist. He says in Romans chapter 1 verse 19 and 20. He says since what we can or excuse me. What can be known about God is evident among them. Because God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes. That is his eternal power. Divine nature. Have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understood that though what he has made. Or through what he has made. As a result... People are without excuse. You see, what Solomon says about wisdom is the same thing that, that Paul says about the existence of God. You cannot, you cannot plead ignorance to the existence of God. You may choose to reject God, you may choose to ignore God, but you cannot plead ignorance to the existence of God because all of creation has cried out that there is a God. All of creation has shown you there is a God who exists. All of creation and all the wisdom of creation has shown you there is a God who created, and this God who created, created with of a specific design of the universe. And so you can reject it, you can deny it, but what you cannot do is ignore it and think that it never happened because the wisdom of God is everywhere around you. It will be heard, whether in the chaotic voices or the calm voices, whether you're on a mountaintop or you're in the middle of a chaotic city. The voices and the wisdom of God, it will be heard. You see, once it's heard, it leads automatically to indictment because since it's ignored and ignorance is not an excuse, that only leaves one thing, a willful rejection of it. It's the only explanation. Some of you may have heard of a different street preacher, a street preacher named Sam Bayetta. And for seven years, he has lived in the Charlotte area, and he rides a bike. Some of you that work in the Charlotte area, maybe you've seen him. He rides more like a tricycle, to be honest with you. It's this bike with two wheels in the back. But he has this very simple Jesus saves message. And as he rides through the streets of Charlotte, or he walks through the streets of Charlotte, stands on the street corners, that's what he repeats over and over and over again. In fact, because he repeats that same message over and over and over again, he's been dubbed as the Jesus saves guy, which is a pretty appropriate title because that's what he does over and over and over. And so some of you may not recognize the name, but I want to show you a picture. This is him. Um, you guys can see him here. Obviously, his sign, Jesus saves. He carries that sign with him. It's on his bicycle. Um, and so like wisdom, he is a street preacher. He's going to go out to anywhere there is a crowd, right? And, and anywhere there's a group of people that are gathered, anywhere that he can, can share the message that Jesus saves, he's going to do this. And so he's been in several different places all over downtown. Um, but most recently... He's really taken to places that are drawing crowds, uh, maybe not for the best reason, right? So back during the summer, we're in there, all these protests and all these uh, uh, situations going on in downtown Charlotte. Guess where Sam was at? Right in the midst of them. 
with the exact same message that he's been preaching the whole time. You see, I don't know if you can see him, but Sam is there holding that sign, but he's surrounded by other people. And if you, there, there was a different picture that zoomed out a little bit. And man, he is in the midst of this crowd, and there are people all around him. And a little bit to his left are some police officers in riot gear. And then there's all these other crowds of people. And so you may not be familiar with that picture. This may be the familiar picture that you've seen of him because this is what made him famous. Not preaching Jesus saves for seven years. This is the picture that made him famous. Because in the midst of one of those protests, people didn't like the message that they heard. And so these people in this protest just didn't like the message. And and he kept crying out that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And they didn't receive it very well. And so this second picture shows the result of him standing on the street corner. And this is after one night in the protest. And Sam said that he was heckled, he was mocked. He was cussed at, he was sprayed with silly string, and he was even doused with flour and glitter. And it had several undesirable liquids poured on him at the time. You see, a couple of people confronted him and said, why don't you say something else? And you know how he responded? I love it. He simply stopped Jesus saves, and he started singing hymns. And then he started reciting Bible verses, which was, of course, not what they wanted to hear either. You see, for Sam, his message, like wisdom, has not always been well received. In verse 22, we see that the same thing that happened to Sam is really the same thing that's been happening, the treatment that's been happening to wisdom throughout the thousands of years that we've had this passage. In verse 22, wisdom indicts three different groups of people for the way that they treated her. And she kind of does it in question form. In verse 22, she asks, How long, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? So that's the first group, the foolish ones. These are the young and the gullible. These are the ones who just believe anything because they don't have enough experience to know what is truth. And she goes on, she says, How long will you mockers enjoy mocking? Mockers here in the context are people, these are people who know it all. These are people you can't teach anything new because they already know everything. In fact, to even have a conversation with you is an insult to their intelligence because they're so far beyond you that you have nothing new to add to them because they already know it all anyway. In past years, we would call this the enlightened culture. In maybe a more modern term, this is the woke culture. Because you can't speak to their reality because you are so ignorant to them and they know everything. And so they mock your wisdom because you don't have anything to add to their wisdom. And so she says, well, how long are you going to keep mocking the wisdom that I'm trying to give you? How long are you going to keep acting like you know it all when really you don't? And so then she goes on. And she gives this third indictment in the end of verse uh, 22. She says, you and you fools hate knowledge. So how long will you fools hate knowledge? And, and I grew up, if you grew up in a house like I did, my mama didn't let me call anybody a fool. Okay? Because she was very clear, the Bible says you don't do that. You don't call people a fool. Right? So when I read this verse several years after I got in trouble for calling people fools, I had a question for my mama. And it was, how come I can't do it, but, but God can call people fools? All right? And I want to be clear that my mama was right. All right? And she made it very clear through a belt that mama was right too. Okay? Um, so mama was right because in the book of Matthew, it does say don't call people fools. Uh, because in that context, it's devaluing the person. It's saying that they are less than a human being. All right? But in this context, in, in the context, by the way, this is not the only time that people are called fools in the Bible. In fact, it happens a lot. All right? I didn't know that when I was younger. I just found that out later. Okay? Um, probably a good thing because I probably got beaten more often by question mama um, and what she told me. So, but 
But in the context, in this context, in Proverbs and throughout most of the Bible, when it calls someone a fool or when it speaks of someone being a fool, it's calling them that or speaking to that because they have refused or completely rejected the notion of God and godly wisdom. Okay? So when she speaks of a fool here, she is speaking of someone who is completely void of any idea of wisdom or completely void of anyone who, is, who has any object or any uh, drawing towards Christ. They have completely rejected the notion of God, and in this case, the wisdom of God. They have no spiritual direction and no desire for wisdom or anything godly. And so these are the indictments that they come to, against people by God and this godly wisdom. And you either try to put blinders on, you try to pretend that you don't know better, you've, you've elevated your wisdom above His wisdom, or you've completely rejected His wisdom and, and wisdom altogether. And often these last two, they're going to overlap. See, when we elevate ourselves, we elevate ourselves at the expense of rejecting Him. We start to think, well, I think this versus what God says, or I believe this versus what God says, or I feel this. And, and oftentimes we think that we've evolved beyond the wisdom that we have. We've evolved beyond the wisdom of the future or past generations. We've evolved beyond the wisdom of this book that was written thousands of years ago. I mean, how could this book have any authority? How could this book speak to anything that's going on in 2020 or 2021? How can this book thousands of years ago have any wisdom for us? Because we are so far advanced. We know so much more now than we knew these people, these simple people knew back then. And so we reject him and we reject any authority that he has in our lives because we reject the wisdom that he has. We reject the word that he has. And we simply believe that, you know what, we don't need it anymore. You see, the truth is, this is not just an indictment of these three groups. This is an indictment of all of humanity. And it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, they decided to mock and reject the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God was there's one tree that you don't eat of. You've got all these other trees. You've got everything you ever needed. Just don't eat of this one tree. And Eve said, you know what? I don't like that idea. I've got a better idea. I think that God is holding me back, and I think that God knows that if I eat of that tree, then I'll know more than He does. And so I'm going to do it. And so she does. She takes it, and she mocks the one wisdom of God, or the wisdom of God that she had. And she mocks it, and she rejects it, and then she gives her husband, and he rejects it, and he mocks the wisdom of God. And so from that moment, all of humanity has been trapped in the same indictment, because it's not just them. Isn't this the same indictment that we see over and over and over again in humanity? It's the same thing that happens, the same indictment that happens every time someone mocks the Word of God and the wisdom of God. When we refuse to live according to the plan and the rules that he lays out. When we have the same indictment happens when we willfully reject his plan and then rebel against him. It's the same indictment that we have when we say this book and God and God has wisdom. It has no authority on me. I don't have to answer to it. Or even, yeah, I know what you say, God, but this is what I think. I know what you say, God, but I'd rather do it this way. I know this is your plan and your desire, but I'm going to do it my way because my way is going to work better for me. It's the same indictment that's been happening for all of humanity from the very beginning. And since Adam and Eve, all of humanity has tried to claim ignorance. All of humanity has mocked and rejected the wisdom of God. And the same way that the protesters treated Sam in that picture, it's the same way that you and I have treated God. You see, we look at that picture of Sam and we say, how could anybody treat somebody like that? How could anybody do those things to him, douse him with flour and spray silly string on him? How could people cuss at him and reject the simple message that he's going to give 
And yet the truth is we are all just as guilty as everybody that was in that protest because that's what we have done to God. We have rejected, we have mocked, and before that we even tried to plead that we just didn't know any better. And it was right in front of our face the whole time. But i got to share with you the great message because the good news is that God doesn't leave us in our own ignorance and our own foolishness. You see, instead of leaving us there, He gives us this invitation. Despite the way that we've treated Him and rejected Him, He makes a way for us to come back to Him. And He offers us this second chance. And if you look with me in verse 23, you're going to see this overall picture of this beautiful invitation that He gives. In verse 23, she, being the, the wisdom, says, If you respond to my warning, the phrase there is literally, if you will turn back or turn towards my rebuke, if you'll stop running away from me and come back to me. So if you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. This is the ultimate invitation here. It's the invitation to come back to Him. It's an invitation to turn from what you were doing and turn back to Him. This invitation to stop the rejection, stop the rebellion and come back to Him. Come back. This invitation to repent and turn towards Him instead of away from Him. Towards, towards His wisdom and His guidance to come back to Him. And I want you to see this because this is beautiful. In verse 24 and 25 we're going to dig a little deeper. And we're going to see this way that he's offered this invitation to you. See in verse 24, he gives these three, or 24 and 25, these three short uh, uh, phrases that foreshadow the gospel so beautifully. In verse 24, he says that I called out. See, this is a reference. When we see the foreshadowing in the gospel, this is a reference to the Old Testament prophets. For hundreds of years, thousands of years before Christ, God was calling out to the nations of Israel, Come back to me. Come back. You've gone too far. Come back to me. Come back and repent. Come back to where I made you to be. Come back to the rules and and the place, the relationship that we had together. Come back and repent. It could also be a reference to John the Baptist. You see, he's the forerunner of Christ. He's the last major prophet of the books. And he has this simple message. He goes before Christ. And the message he has to all the world, in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 is very simple repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near this is the crying out of the invitation this is the invitation to repent and come back to the kingdom repent and come back to wisdom repent and come back to God and this is him calling out through all these prophets all the Old Testament all the way up to John the Baptist who cries out in the wilderness come back repent and in verse 24 he goes on a little further he says, I extended my hand. All right. Now, if you extend your hand, it means that you stretch out part of who you are towards somebody else. I want you to think, if you're getting ready to shake hands with somebody, and I know that's odd because we haven't done that in like all of 2020, and so we've lost practice shaking hands. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, think of a fist bump or something else. All right. But think back in the good old days when we could shake hands with people. When, when you were standing there and you were going to shake hands with somebody, and you had to extend your hand to them, which means there was a gap between you and that person, and you went to extend your hand, you stretched out part of you, over this gap in hopes that they would join with you and bridge this gap together. But it took you initiating the invitation. It took you initiating the extending of the hand to bridge that gap between the two people, to make this connection. And that's what God says that He's going to do or what He's done. I extended my hand. That's what we see in the incarnation of Christ. We just celebrated Christmas a few weeks ago or months, uh, yeah, a few weeks ago now. And that is what we saw 
Christmas is the extension of God into this gap that stands between Him and us. It is the extension of part of who God is, all of who God is, over this gap that separates you and us, called our sins, that we can't bridge ourselves, but He extends His hand. He gives this invitation. He initiates the thing and says, Come, take my hand, and let's cross this gap. Let's bridge this gap. Let's not be this divide between you and me anymore. This is the beautiful picture of what Christ does, you see. But it's not just the the incarnation. It's also the crucifixion that it takes because it took Him dying on the cross to make the extension complete. It took Him bridging the gap with the cross to make it complete because our sins still had to be paid for. Our Our sins still had to be covered. And so we see this is the extension of the invitation that John writes about in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 when he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way that God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you hear what He said? We didn't love Him. He loved us. And He sent His Son. He loved us and He extended who He was to us. He loved us and He extended His hand to be the propitiation. That's a fancy way of saying to be the covering for our sins. So that we can have this gap bridged between us and God. So there's a bridge built between who we are as sinful humans and this righteous holy God. That there's this no longer this gap between us who cannot get to perfection and Him who is perfect. He extended Himself. He sent His Son so that that gap is covered. The beauty of the message is He doesn't leave us there. In fact, His invitation goes beyond just that event of the incarnation and the crucifixion. It goes on in verse 25, beyond the death of Christ. The invitation is to all my counsel. And we see this connection in John chapter 14, verse 26. John refers to the counselor, the one who gives the counsel, as the Holy Spirit. The Father has sent Him in my name, and He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. You see, God sent the Counselor. He sent the Holy Spirit to still be active today, to teach us and to point us back to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sins, that reminds us that we need a Savior. And He always, always points us back to Jesus as the one and only Savior. So I want you to see this invitation to the relationship that God is is calling you to. He says, I've been calling out. I've been asking you to repent. I've been begging you to come back to me for thousands of years across the entire Old Testament. I've been begging for you to repent and come back to me. And then I extended my son. I sent my son. I extended my hand to you. And I came to be part of you to bridge this gap between you and me. And now he says, even then, I've been giving you my counselor, my my Holy Spirit, to, to bring you back, to point you back to Jesus as the way. This is the invitation that God has extended to all of us. Why? Because we rejected and we mocked and we refused to listen to the words that He gave us in the first place. This is the invitation that we have because it is a beautiful love of God. But I want you to go back to the very first part of 23 with me. The very few first words of the invitation starts with one word. If. Which I want you to understand, that means this is a conditional statement. This is not a guarantee. This is not a, this happens for everybody. It is a conditional statement. If means we have a choice to either choose to respond to his warning 
or to continue in our rejection of his rebellion. And if we, if we will repent, and if we will follow with accepting Christ, if we will listen to the wisdom, and then we get to live in verse 33. We get to live securely and be free from the fear of danger. We get to, to live this opportunity where we can live securely. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried that our sins are not going to be covered. We don't have to be worried that we weren't good enough, or we didn't measure up, or we've done enough good deeds. If we'll just simply listen, repent from our our sins, turn back to Him, and seek after Him. Our eternity with Him can be fixed and sealed forever. There's a place and a peace that happens in the safety of Him that happens nowhere else. But it all hinges on the simple little word, if. You see, that means there's a choice that has to be made. It's not a guarantee. It is if you respond, if you accept the invitation, if you accept the counsel that I'm giving you, then you can live in this place forever. So those who choose to accept Him get this glorious invitation, but there's also those who will choose not to. And for those who choose not to, there's one fate that awaits you. It is an inevitable judgment. Judgment that is guaranteed. This is the fate of everyone who chooses to continue their rejection of God and His wisdom. And he makes this clear through the street preacher wisdom, starting in verse 28. In verse 28, he starts off by saying, I, in turn... Right, meaning, because you have rejected my invitation, I will laugh at your calamities. I will mock when terror strikes you. And he continues on in verse 27. It says, When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamities come like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you. And I want you to notice, if you read those two verses with me, you notice the word being repeated. When. Okay? So three times he uses the word when terror strikes in verse 26. Again in verse 27, when terror strikes like a storm. And later in that same verse, when trouble and stress overcome you. See, back in verse 23, there was an if, which means conditional, which means there's a possibility that may not happen. But now we get to verse 25, or excuse me, verse 26 and verse 27, and the if is replaced with when because the, the condition has not been met. The, the rejection continues, and because the rejection has continued, then the when becomes this unquestionable, non-conditional, inevitable judgment. This is what is going to happen. You might know that, that when this is going to, you might not know when this is going to happen, but it's going to happen because you have continued to reject because even in this moment you're rejecting and even in this time right now that you have you keep rejecting and so the only thing that awaits you that reject is judgment and so i'll be honest with you many of us may not be comfortable with wisdom or with god laughing at people in those situations when there's terror and there's trouble and there's calamity because all those things are guaranteed we may not be Comfortable with God laughing at those people, but Bruce Wickens puts it or explains these verses very well. He says, Wisdom does not laugh at distress, but at the triumph of what is right over what is wrong. And when your disaster happens, you see, it was wrong for us to mock wisdom and God the way we did. It was wrong for us to reject and rebel against God the way we did. But all of that is going to be set right in the judgment and through the justice of God. And In essence, wisdom is not laughing at people who are struggling, but rather it's rejoicing in the justice that's being carried out. You see, what really happens in the judgment is that God gives people exactly what they ask for. He gives them exactly what they want. I hear all the time that a loving God would never send someone to hell, and you're right. But a loving God will let you choose hell over Him. You see, that's what He makes clear in these last few verses here, in verse 31. That you may choose to live a life, and you may choose an eternity full of terror and full of calamity. And He's not going to stop you from choosing that. 
In fact, in verse 31, he says that they will eat the fruit of their way and be gluttoned with their own schemes. They will be overly filled, is what glutton means, with their own schemes and their own desires. Ultimately, they will get what they want. They will get an existence apart from God, completely void of any wisdom or any direction. The only thing that they will do is follow after these desires and passions that were promised to be fulfilling that are not and never will be fulfilled. These desires and passions that they will chase after for all of eternity over and over again. This is what they wanted. So this is what God's going to give them. You wanted to chase after this? Then chase after it. Go after it. In fact, I'm not going to hold you back. In fact, I'm going to completely step out of the picture and let you do it until it brings you your destruction. That's the judgment of God. He's going to give you exactly what you want. So anytime somebody says that a loving God wouldn't send someone to hell, you're right. But a God would let you choose hell over him because he didn't make you a robot. He gave you an invitation and you chose to reject it. And so understand... There is an evil judgment that waits those who do not listen to the voice of wisdom, to those that refuse to respond to the warning, and to those that pay no attention to the hand that God extended through the invitation. And there's one last thing that I want to make clear in this passage. You see, the very clear warning of this passage is that you need to accept the invitation that God has offered. That is overarching what this passage is trying to tell you because there's judgment that's coming. But the second one is this. That you need to accept that invitation now. You need to accept the hand, the outstretched hand of God now. And you need to initiate it before it's too late. You see, what people don't realize is this invitation of God, it's not an open-ended invitation. It is a limited time offer. You see, you don't know when the time runs out. You don't know when your time is up. You see, when people get a coupon that's an offer, and a lot of times there's an expiration date on it. And so you can use that, that coupon, you can use that offer all the way up until that expiration date. And then it's no good anymore. I want to share with you this invitation of God is just like those coupons. That it has an expiration date on it. You have an expiration date on you that was set long before you were ever created and you were ever born. And in that time, when that time comes, the invitation and the offer is no good anymore. It makes this clear. In verse 28, and starting in verse 28, he says that through the wisdom, the street preacher wisdom, he says there's coming a time when the offer and the invitation, it's not going to be available to you. In verse 28, he says, then, then, being when the terror starts, when the judgment starts, then they will call on me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me. One of the great commentators writes this. He says, when wisdom is rejected, she has no alternative plan for the fool. In the time of crisis, the fool cannot expect to beg for and receive instant wisdom. You see, the reason they can't expect it is because in verse 29 and verse 30, they have spent a lifetime of hating knowledge, not fearing God, declining godly counsel, and rejecting any form of correction. And so then, they, they've done this for their whole lives. Then all of a sudden, judgment starts, and then they start seeking after God. Judgment starts, and they say, hey God, why is this happening to me? God, why am I going here? And all the time, he says, listen, you had all these chances, and you didn't take it. You had every moment and every breath that I gave you, and you didn't take it, and so now it's too late. You, you can't call out to me now because it's too late. The greatest news of all is that right now there's this opportunity, there's this choice that you can make, that if you're hearing my voice, 
then it's not too late to make this choice. It is not too late to accept this invitation. It's not too late to accept Christ as your Savior. If you are hearing my voice either in this room or online right now, you've got the opportunity to initiate the invitation, to accept this invitation. You see, that you've got a chance to repent and turn back to God. Do it now because Isaiah 55 verse 6 says to seek the Lord while He may be found. Call to Him while He is near. Today is the time. He is near. Now is the time that He can be found. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I wouldn't dare try to scare anybody into making a decision. But I'm simply giving you this truth. That if you don't, terror and calamity and destruction is your reward for what you choose. Or living securely and without fear can be your reward for what you choose. But the choice has to be made. You cannot plead ignorance. You cannot say, I didn't know because you did. All of creation has cried out. And there's a coming a time when creation and in your creation is going to end. And I would love to tell you it's 50 years from now. I'd love to tell you it's 10 years from now, but I can't. It may be 10 minutes from now. It may be in the next 10 breaths you take. The truth is you don't know. And so I would never try to scare anybody. I simply want to give you the truth that if you've got breath in your lungs right now, then now is the time to accept the pleading of Christ. Now is the time to repent and come back to Him. Now is the time to take His outstretched hand and accept what He's done for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there's coming a time that it won't be there for you. There's coming a time when the hand that's been extended in imitation will be drawn back and the hand of judgment will be put in its place. And that's the only choice you have at that moment. You see, in this message, is the message of every street preacher that I've ever met is simply this. What wisdom has been calling out is that it is time. It is time now. And you've got a choice to either accept his invitation or to reject it. But it's a choice that I can't make for you and a choice that you shouldn't put off any longer. Because now's the time and this is the chance. Let's pray together.